Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome to Most Notorious. Rarely do you find the murderer in American history able to live out a criminal career spanning decades in full view of the press and the public. Such was the life of Los Angeles' most cunning and ruthless crime boss of all time. And no, I'm not talking about Benjamin Siegel. Mickey Cohen managed to live long past old Bugsy, forging an empire that shook the very foundations of L.A. and far beyond the city as well. My guest, Terry Tariba, has lived in Los Angeles for most of her life. She saw early success as one of the nation's premier fashion designers and counted as her friends The Doors' Jim Morrison and Andy Warhol. She researched and wrote a spectacular piece of nonfiction called Mickey Cohen, The Life and Crimes of L.A.'s Most Notorious Mobster. It covers not only the life of Mickey Cohen, but six decades of Los Angeles gangland history. Thank you so much, Terry, for joining me today. Now, your book documents the epic mass corruption of gangster-era Los Angeles in glorious detail. It's absolutely stunning how widespread the crime really was and how deeply it sunk into the pores of the city. Eastern organized crime bosses, rival gangland leaders, two-bit hoodlums, vice squads, Hollywood stars and moguls, city, county, and state politicians, even Robert Kennedy and Richard Nixon on the national level. Nightclub owners, call girls, the county sheriff's department, and of course, the LAPD, all intertwine incestuously in your book. How surprised were you over how complicated and deep all of these relationships were? Well, you know, I I hadn't planned on writing this book, but I was compelled to do it because it was such an incredible, outrageous, brazen story, and it had never been done. And the history of Los Angeles uh, needed to be revealed. It needed to have this story told. It had been covered up because Mickey Cohn often was in business with politicians and law enforcement, and they all came up with one story. And this story held until the publication of my book in 2012. So I had a great time doing it, and it was hard to organize because there were so many schemes that needed to be unwound and knitted together to create a giant tapestry that gives you a full picture of the story of L.A. and starting in Prohibition to 1976, who all the players were, many of them hidden, and I continue to look at stories and information and documents and talk to people to this day. 
Many American gangsters learned their trade on the streets, and Mickey Cohen was no exception. Let's talk about his early days. What was life like for Mickey Cohen as a young boy? And how did he transition from a baby-faced kid to a young man on a career path of crime? Mickey Cohen was born in Brooklyn, but his father died when he was a few months old, and he came with his mother to Los Angeles. So his first memories are only of Los Angeles. And he lived in a hard scrabble neighborhood, Boyle Heights, which was home to the largest Jewish community west of the Mississippi, many, many different immigrant groups. It was on the edge of Chinatown, Japantown, Russian Hill. It was a melting pot of the community, Mexicans, and everyone got along very well. But because it was a poverty-stricken community, there was lots of cutting corners, trying to do the best you can, trying to hustle, you know, to keep your life going. And his mother ran a small grocery store. You know, he had older brothers. One of the brothers was a corrupting influence. He was nearly 10 years older. And he would take him on forays to gamble. He hung out in a pool hall as a child. He passed bets. He, you know, handled bootleg booze. The older brothers had a a gin mill in the back of a legal drugstore during Prohibition. He worked there. He sold newspapers on the street. He couldn't get past second grade. He was incorrigible. He was selling newspapers from the time he, you know, was like four or five years old. He'd sit on the stacks of newspapers and trade them hot dogs for a newspaper. He'd do whatever he could to get by. And he tried to get ahead from a very, very early age. He ended up in two reform schools by the time he was 10. He had a big brother, the Big Brother program, because he was, you know, without a father. He had a mentor in the Big Brother program who was involved in boxing and That's where he began learning how to box, the Queensberry Rules of Boxing, and was arrested at age 10. He held up a theater with a club. So he was already on a route that was not the normal way to go. You know, he had really essentially a second-grade education. He couldn't count. He couldn't read. He couldn't write. At 15, depression had hit, and he went to Cleveland where his older brother was living. So he hitchhiked and rode the rails with hobos, boxcars, and he ended up in Cleveland. And there he immediately went into fight clubs around town. And a number of his friends who were young boxers and newsboys, this teenage group, he created a little gang in Cleveland and they were mainly Italian kids, and one of them had an uncle who was the boss of Buffalo. The big prohibition ring that went from Detroit to Cleveland to Buffalo along the perimeter, the U.S. perimeter of Lake Erie during prohibition, where they imported all the booze from Canada, was one big ring, and it was Jewish gangsters and Italian gangsters working together. And he fell in with both the Jewish and Italian gangsters in Cleveland. He was very tiny, so he was, you know, a featherweight. And he was deemed good enough to be sent to New York City to box. They were very, very involved with his career as a boxer, but it didn't really work out. He was in New York City for about a year and a half, around 1930, 1931, in his teenage years. So then he came back to Cleveland and he created a little gang. He had people working for him here in L.A. when he was selling newspapers. He had another Jewish boy and uh, two Mexican kids that worked for him when they sold papers in the streets. And it was always just a very, very, very rough environment for him. He was fearless and he was fearless in the ring And he had this burglary ring, and they'd go rob places, mainly bookie joints and houses of prostitution. And he got in trouble because, you know, these were organized crime venues. So, of course, you know, he was noticed because he was stealing with his little gang from these organized crime places. 
And he, he really had no idea that the concept of organized crime, but he soon learned and he was taken into the family, so to speak, of these Italian mobsters, the Milano family. And they were very, very important mobsters in Prohibition and continued on that way. They had made a fortune during Prohibition and were linked to Lucky Luciano and the highest ranking mobsters in the country. So he had some very rough times and got in trouble with the police in Cleveland. And the Jewish gangsters and the Italian gangsters sent him to Chicago. He was maybe in his very, very early 20s. So he had this whole Eastern background where he was surrounded by organized crime figures of the highest echelon and made many friends. So he was in Cleveland, New York, and Chicago in his early days. And he was tough, and he was dangerous, and he was crazy. And he'd do anything to impress them. He called them the people. You know, anything to curry favor of or get the attention in a good way of the people. And he arrived in Chicago right after Capone had been sent to prison. Is that correct? Yeah, he often says that he met Al Capone, but Al Capone actually was his idol and role model, and he loved it. Al Capone was a big guy, and Mickey, you know, was five foot five in his elevator shoes, his custom-made elevator shoes. Al Capone, you know, was called, his nickname was the big fella, as Meyer Lansky was the little guy, Al Capone was the big fella. But, you know, there was some resemblance, and Mickey loved his big gangster hats and the flashy way he dressed, the custom clothes. And Al Capone also, like Luciano, was in business with Jewish gangsters. So he had the same situation that the Luciano family had, Al Capone. They worked together. So I don't believe that he ever met Al Capone, although he often would say that he met him once. But Al Capone was in jail when Mickey Cohn was in Chicago, so I don't think this happened. But a lot of what Mickey Cohn says is phantasmagorical, so you have to weed through not only the stories that you know are covering right. the prominent people that he's in business with, you also have to weed out his mythology, the self-created mythology. That had never been done before in my book. And the so-called story of Mickey Cohn was mainly fantasy and mythology and urban legend. And very little of it was true. Right. So he's in Chicago. He's already made some connections to the New York Mafia. He must have been pretty close with the Eastern syndicates because he's assigned to Bugsy Siegel when he moves back to Los Angeles. The organized crime, he was in with Cleveland, which was, as I said, a major base of organized crime, and they were very powerful, New York and Chicago. He had made connections with all of them, and they were all connected with each other because all of those three cities had what was called the combination, which was Jews and Italians working together sure. and other ethnic groups, too where in some cities, you know, it was strictly Sicilian and that those particular three cities where he was, they all worked together and he took advantage of it. You know, he fell right in. And he lived with these Italian kids on, on Mayfield Road on the hill in Cleveland. Uh, in fact, one of, one of the, his little gang in Cleveland, one of the Italian boys in it, later became, his name was Babe Trescaro, later became one of Jimmy Hoffa's main lieutenants, uh, major, major power in the Teamsters. So, you know, he had from the beginning all kinds of things going for him that would work out. When he got in trouble in Chicago, this meeting of the minds sent him back to L.A., and they wanted him to go to work immediately for Bugsy Siegel, who had arrived in L.A. around 1935. He actually arrived right after Prohibition ended, which was 1934, and they had been here visiting, and, you know, they set him up here to take over the L.A. rackets. What was Mickey's relationship with Bugsy Siegel, and how did he ingratiate himself into L.A.'s underworld? Well, he was from L.A., so he knew a lot of people here. And 
L.A. at the time was run by corrupt politicians, corrupt law enforcement, both LAPD and Sheriff's Department, and this was not set up with the Eastern Syndicate. Benjamin Siegel was sent here to set up the Eastern Syndicate and take it over from these local quote-unquote businessmen, gangsters. They were people like Charlie Crawford, who during the Roaring Twenties was king of the L.A. rackets. He was considered a businessman and politician. His lieutenant, who became his archenemy, was Captain Guy McAfee, who had been the head of the LAPD vice squad until he retired and became, after the assassination of Charlie Crawford, the number one gangster. So the mayor, George Cryer, was you know in business with Charlie Crawford. It was set up in a way where these local politicians, businessmen, whatever they called them, they weren't organized crime figures, and they did everything they could to keep, they sent Al Capone away. The cops were here when he tried to come in the late 20s, and, you know, he was sent out of town. So they had a tight grip on the rackets here. And they did every kind of racket possible. The only thing they didn't do is labor racketeering, which the Eastern Syndicate, of course, was heavily involved in. They had gambling, they had prostitution, they had drugs. I don't think they had as much extortion as later happened with the Eastern Syndicate and the labor racketeering. But they had everything going on that would later be enhanced by Benny Siegel and Mickey Cohn. Bugsy Siegel fits in well in Hollywood makes lots of friends. Could you talk a little bit about how he managed his way up the social ladder? So these businessmen, politician, gangsters, you know, hyphenated locals who ran the rackets here had a real gangster in their midst when Benny Siegel came to Los Angeles around 1935. He wasn't messing around. And many people knew who he was. But he came here as a millionaire sportsman. He was extremely handsome and charismatic, and he immediately fell in with the movie crowd. He was sponsored by this fabulous character, 18 years his senior. Her name was Countess DeFrosso, Dorothy Taylor Caldwell DeFrosso. She was an American heiress who had married a count to get a title, an impoverished Italian count who had this giant villa in Rome, one of the greatest villas in Rome. And she was this fabulous character who had moved here and had this a very big affair with Gary Cooper. And she was also much older than he. So when they broke up, she ended up falling in love with Bugsy Siegel. And so since she was the pinnacle of society for Hollywood, she knew the kings and queens and the richest people in the, in the world, and she entertained them all at her Beverly Hills mansion and her giant villa in Rome. And he was the host at her parties. And only the top A-list of Hollywood, the top stars and the handful of moguls were there. And he's the host. And this went on for years, as Mickey Cohn was fighting hard to get rid of the entrenched locals. So it was a long, long battle, but they won. And Mickey Cohn looked up to Bugsy Siegel, didn't he? He was a role model and a mentor. He was a mentor, you know, because he had everything that he wanted. Bugsy Siegel was extremely handsome. Mickey Cohn wasn't. He had great taste. Mickey Cohn wanted and actually, you know, had his own sensibility. He wanted all those beautiful clothes and beautiful cars and beautiful homes. He wanted the status. He was a striver and got it in his own way. He didn't copy it, but he, he watched. But he never had the social cachet that Bugsy Siegel did have in the 1930s. So I'm not going to go into how Siegel gets into trouble with his business partners back in New York over the Flamingo Hotel debacle in Las Vegas. You can watch the Warren Beatty movie, buy your book, or wait for another most notorious podcast episode down the road uh, for that story. But he winds up dead, and Mickey Cohen moves into his position. Is there a connection in your research between Siegel's death and Mickey Cohen's new life? 
I believe there definitely is. He has indicated it personally many times. I have heard like a lawyer that I was seeing at a book signing that's on YouTube said that he told him that he and his boys were responsible. I definitely feel that he was behind the organization of his assassination. Yes. That's my feeling, and everybody can say whatever they want. You know, it's still an unsolved case. I've been in the murder murder house. I've stood where the murder happened, the assassination of Bugsy Siegel. And I concur with the FBI that if he was killed through the shots from the window that they say he was from the outside front window, they would have had to shoot in a curve. You know, the bullets would have had to have gone in a curve. I believe he was shot in a very calculated setup in the interior of the house. And, you know, it was a ruse that, you know, he was shot through a window. And there were many people in the house, actually. Virginia Hill's brother, his girlfriend, Alan Smiley, was on the sofa next to Siegel. And as Mickey Cohn said, if they wanted Smiley, they would have taken him. Uh, There was a Chinese cook in the house. And... Barney Ruditsky, he had been a famous NYPD detective and he later worked in Hollywood for both Benny Siegel and Mickey Cohn doing different things and then became the most famous private detective in Hollywood. When the police came, he was already in the house. There were many people around. It was a very, very, very sophisticated and very clean hit. And the Beverly Hills Police Department and Sheriff's Department who were in charge of the case and everybody else, no one was really trying to solve it. I've seen the murder book, and it's about five pages long. It's so scanty, you can't imagine. It's still an open case. Mickey himself was in many ways a walking contradiction. In certain ways, he fits perfectly with our society's stereotypes of a mobster. The look, the money, the way he spoke and the violence, of course. However, he had some quirky habits as well. Could you talk a little bit about Mickey's personality? I reveal in my book that he had an illness that uh, at the time was uncurable, that was a STD, and from that I believe he became compulsive. So he was constantly washing his hands, he showered numerous times a day, And I think this cleanliness compulsion was the number one driving force in his personality. It had to be satisfied constantly. He couldn't pick up anything without a tissue. And if he had to, he'd, you know, need to run and wash his hands. So this overwhelming fear of germs, this most dangerous, fearless man had, it constitutes me the core of, you know, his personality. When he was a child, he smoked, he drank, he sampled these things, and that's all he did because he didn't like the taste. He was a teetotaler, you know, don't believe, you know, he took drugs. He had these very clean habits, physical cleanliness. He was no drugs, no alcohol, no drink. And it's particularly good when you're trying to control people and are constantly in dangerous situations and have a flaring temper that, you know, you you are in control, at least, you know, you aren't falling down drunk or stoned. And, uh, you know, it, it helps in your business. It wasn't that he was against them. It's just they didn't appeal to him. Mickey Cohn was a person who he loved the violence. He loved the fight. He loved being a gangster. He was always trying to improve himself. He did learn to read and write. As I said, he was illiterate. He couldn't get past second grade. And he was always striving to get ahead. He had his own point of view. He had the best of the best, like Benjamin Siegel, but he had a whole different sensibility. He was very flashy, where Bugsy Siegel dressed like an English gentleman. His clothing could have been from Savile Row, Mickey Cohn had custom-made clothes that looked sort of like zoot suits, and he had the biggest gangster hats. They were always the most expensive, but Mickey Cohn went for flash, and that was his sensibility. So he, he indulged himself, and he really spanned up a storm. 
with no visible means of income, which of course got him in trouble with the IRS. His main focus was making money and spending it. I had to laugh while reading the book because despite Cohen's lack of the personal vices generally associated with sin, he loves sweets, especially ice cream. Instead of a bar in his house like you'd expect the gangster to have, he put in a soda fountain instead. Yeah, he'd make uh, hot fudge sundaes for his guests. And when the Reverend Billy Graham, the, the most famous evangelist later in history, I think, at the time he was just becoming known here in Los Angeles, he was from North Carolina, and he was a right-wing evangelical Baptist. He was on a big crusade in Los Angeles, and it's where he got his first attention with the Hearst newspapers backing him. Nicky Cohn was on the front page of all the newspapers that year, year and a half, and one of his quests was to convert Mickey Cohn. What could be better to, you know, get publicity for Billy Graham than to try to convert the most talkative and talked about gangster of the period, Mickey Cohn, a Jew? So that was his quest. And so, you know, he came over to Mickey Cohn's and Mickey pondered, what do I serve him? You know, he felt very uncomfortable, of course, having this Baptist evangelical running after him, essentially. And I think it was to garner publicity for Billy Graham to get himself, you know, more headlines. They were both headline hungry, and it was a meeting of the minds um, to garner publicity. But Mickey Cohn decided to serve Billy Graham cookies and hot chocolate. (laughs) Now, there had to be a record somewhere for the number of assassination attempts on Mickey Cohen. And a gangster by the name of Jack Dragna really seemed to have it in for him and was responsible for a few of those attempts. What was Dragna's beef with Mickey? And was it good luck, smarts, or instinct that allowed Mickey to survive so many close calls? I think it was all of those things. Jack Dragna was the mafia boss. You know, he was from Corleone, Sicily. He was the mafia boss of Los Angeles. And when Benjamin Siegel, Bugsy Siegel, came to Los Angeles, Dragna was told by Lucky Luciano and his relative, uh, who was another top, top New York mobster and head of one of the five families, Tommy Lucchese, that they would, you know, that he would become the lieutenant of Benny Siegel. Benjamin Siegel was already so powerful when he came here that uh, Dragna had to concede. And Dragna had not organized this vast territory and very rich territory and very hedonistic territory properly. He was sort of on the sidelines while these wasp gangsters and politicians and cops ran the underworld. He, you know, was on the fringes, and so that wasn't good enough. And, you know, Benny Siegel was out here to really make it work. They saw, you know, nothing but dollar signs because this was probably the most lucrative territory in the country for the mob. So he fell in line. I'm sure he wasn't very happy about it as Benny Siegel's lieutenant with Mickey Cohn as the other lieutenant. Now, Mickey Cohn was very, very organized, and did many, many things that helped create the setup here. That's why when Benjamin Siegel was assassinated in Beverly Hills, he was able to take over the rackets because he had essentially been running them. We will be back after a brief word from our sponsors. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. 
Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And we have returned. Could you talk about some of those assassination attempts that Mickey constantly, some way, somehow managed to dodge? Nobody really knows how many they are. I've counted 11. There were two shootouts on the Sunset Strip. In both cases, two of his lieutenants were killed. Uh, one was at his men's clothing shop, and the other was at uh, nightclub Sherry's, which is now called One Oak. And there was a shooting last year there where they tried to assassinate Suge Knight in the same spot where they tried to assassinate Mickey Cohn 60 years before. So there were two on the Sunset Strip. There were multiple ones at his residence in the affluent West Side neighborhood Brentwood. There was a shootout that wasn't reported downtown on North Broadway. He was clubbed in the head in the card club in Santa Monica. They, you know, there was uh, a little shootout in Bel Air, one of the most exclusive neighborhoods in all of Los Angeles. There were numerous ones that I don't think anybody knew about. There was a bombing where they tried to blow up his house. And it was often Jack Dragna. And because Jack Dragna was the official mob boss of L.A., and for a Jew to become the mob boss of a city was unheard of. When Mickey Cohn came in, he shoved him out of the way as much as he could. So a war started, and it ran from, you know, about 1946 to 1950. And it was for control of Los Angeles. So as you say, Mickey Cohn is living the high life. He's got absolute power in Los Angeles, calling all the shots, virtually untouchable. And here's Jack Dragna on the fringes, watching Cohen, seething with rage, waiting for revenge. And he gets his revenge in a way, doesn't he? Well, I don't think Jack Dragna was responsible for the fall of Mickey Cohen. I think Mickey Cohen, in a lot of ways, was responsible for uh, the problems that he created you know, because the only way they were able to get Mickey Cohn was on tax evasion, like his idol and role model, Al Capone. And they did it twice. But Jack Dragnet did create a lot of problems for him. But the gang war did create tremendous tensions because the whole city was held in his grip. When the bomb went off at his house in Brentwood, they had to take to the radio. Television was brand new then and say another war hadn't broke out. Out and out gang war in the city of Los Angeles couldn't have helped Mickey Cohn. And it was, you know, Jack Dragna 
and cohorts of Jack Dragnes that were the opposition. Of course, you know, he wasn't completely instrumental and he didn't have some big rise and take over the rackets. Uh, the Milanos from Cleveland, Mickey's old mentors, essentially were living here. And they became the mafia family running a lot of things here. Dragness continued, and the Milanos, Mickey actually moved his own mafia family into Los Angeles. But a few of Mickey Cohen's men are arrested, and bonds are posted, tens of thousands of dollars worth of bonds, which Mickey personally puts up, adding up to, to millions in today's money. And then Jack Dragnet decides, pretty deviously, I might add, to, to kill Cohen's men one by one, forcing Cohen to, to forfeit the bond money and hitting him square in the pocketbook with a massive financial blow. Yes, yes. Two of them that had huge bail were killed and, you know, they couldn't find the bodies. And so obviously, you know, he had to forfeit the bond. That absolutely is true. And the fact that there was so much publicity with this gang war going on and many, many problems because Mickey Cohn was also at war with members of the LAPD at that time, high up members of the LAPD who were corrupt. And then he also created an enemy after 1950 when he became chief of police, William Parker. But uh, Mickey was on his way to prison for the first time for tax evasion when he was coming in. And it was later when he was out in 1955 that the war with William Parker exploded. So, you know, he had top LAPD that he was fighting with during the late 40s and Jack Dragna. So it was a war on two fronts at that time. Mickey Cohen crossed paths with a parade of Hollywood celebrities and national figures. Robert Mitchum, George Raft, Ava Gardner, Shirley Temple, and as you mentioned earlier, uh, evangelist Billy Graham are just a few of the names that you write about. In many cases, these relationships were fueled by mutual fascination. Mickey loved movies, and many of these celebrities loved his money and notoriety. Was there any one story about Mickey in a film star that struck you as especially interesting? Well, I go into the story of a favorite guy of his who was an associate named Johnny Stompanato, and he became, in around 1956, the lover of one of the biggest screen goddesses of all time, Lana Turner. And, you know, this was directly a story that Mickey Cohn had orchestrated. And it ended up with Johnny Stompanato dead in Lana Turner's bedroom in 1958. No one really knows for sure. Her daughter, who was 14 years old, Cheryl Crane, the official story goes that she stabbed him in defense of her mother no one knows, and it became Hollywood's greatest scandal. And perhaps along with the O.J. scandal, those are the two top scandals of Hollywood history. And there's been plenty of scandals. And Cohen defended Stampinato. Is that right? Absolutely, yes. And he maintained always that he believed that he was assassinated. The very young Shirley Temple, 21 years old, met and wrote about him in her autobiography, Mickey Cohen, met him at an after-hours club on the Sunset Strip, actually was fascinated by him. And Mickey Cohen spoke to her a little bit and ran away. (laughs) And and I think perhaps Shirley Temple was a bit, bit disappointed. And Mickey Cohen knew Frank Sinatra, too. Well, definitely with Frank Sinatra, because Frank Sinatra had many, many, you know, mob ties. And Frank Sinatra also liked to gamble. So Mickey Cohn used these people in ways, it wasn't that he was so fascinated with him. I mean, you know, I think his fascination was they had money and getting the money from them was what interested him. Because as I said, you know, Mickey Cohn was about one thing, making money and spending it. So like Al Capone before him, uh, Mickey Cohen manages to skirt through uh, much of his criminal career without being physically hurt, at least too badly. But his real tribulations were in the courtroom. Can you talk about Cohen's legal troubles? 
and as you mentioned before, the IRS in particular? Well, Cohen, you know, was in Los Angeles courtrooms in the 40s and 50s for everything from murder to disturbing the peace, every kind of thing you could possibly imagine. Uh, Up until 1951, when he was convicted of income tax evasion, he had only served six weeks for misdemeanor bookmaking in county jail. He was so connected with judges and politicians and had an incredible legal team that they really, really couldn't touch him. He managed to never, you know, he was in court constantly, but nothing ever happened to him. Now, Estes Kefauver came to town. He was a Tennessee senator, buttoned down Yaley with horn-rimmed glasses, and he was a populist figure. And he came to town, and they interviewed around the country in all the major hubs. This was the first time in late 1915 into 1951 that the underworld was really uncovered. And it was uncovered in the new medium of television. And it was the first reality show, but this was a real reality show. And Mickey Cohn testified before the shows were televised. And I have the Mickey Cohn's deposition in my book where you get to see him sparring with, and I have to say he spars with the three senators from Washington in a courtroom in downtown Los Angeles. Now that is one of the things that allowed the gates to open to indict him for income tax evasion. He had a tremendous income by this time, particularly through gambling, but every racket possible. He didn't miss a racket. He had a tremendous income and really no visible means of support. After Mickey Cohen finished his first stint in prison, he began a personal campaign through television and print to convince the world he was rehabilitated. Can you talk about how that went for him? They were never allowed to refer to him. They could only refer to him in the press because he was constantly in the headlines. You know, every traffic ticket when he got out of jail was in the headlines because the press, you know, loved him. And he made good copy, and he was a cottage industry for not just the local press, national press, and even international press. And he courted the headlines, and he knew how to talk to the press. And, you know, he'd give them. Sometimes he'd plant stories he'd want. That was usually the case. He had several journalists on his payroll, And they were never allowed to refer to him after he came out of jail the first time because, you know, he was supposedly rehabilitated. They could only refer to him as ex-mobster or ex-gambling kingpin. This is when he brought Billy Graham in and, you know, was saying that he had rehabilitated himself and then palled around with Billy Graham for the second time. So this time Billy Graham was already in the White House praying with presidents and was the superstar of the evangelicals. Billy Graham actually paid Cohen to come to one of his big come-to-Jesus rallies, didn't he? And I think he was probably hoping to save him publicly. Well, that was in Madison Square Garden. They, you know, the Billy Graham ministry claims that they didn't, and Mickey claims that they did, so you go figure. But it was in Madison Square Garden. There were like seventeen to 20,000 people there with Billy Graham preaching. And all Mickey Cohn did was come on stage and wave and walk off. And Mickey got top billing over Billy Graham. Even at that point, I believe that he was brought in and paid for you know, his trip. But Mickey Cohn at that point, because of the income tax conviction, he figured out ways to live this lavish lifestyle or with other people footing the bill. Loans that, you know, never were repaid, that laundered his dirty money. All kinds of different things that he felt would circumvent the IRS agents who were constantly after him. So Mickey is married for much of his time as a crime boss, but eventually he gets a divorce and proceeds for the first time in a while to play the field. And in the midst of a string of girlfriends, he meets a woman named Candy Bar. And she's a fascinating character. Can you talk about their relationship? Well, many people have 
sad that Mickey Cohen had all these glamorous uh, women. Many, they, they were like sort of, they weren't glamorous like movie stars. They were more like the stripper party girls. And many of them worked for him. Many of them were over spying on Jack Kennedy, frankly, when he was running for president and spent a lot of time here. He had these very flashy relationships that he promoted with his friends in the press. So they appeared all the time in photo ops. Candy Barr was this, I call her the thorniest yellow rose that ever came out of the Lone Star State. (laughs) She was this gorgeous, provocative, blonde stripper who made $2,000 a week at that time as one of the most sought-after strippers in the country. And she dressed in um, a cowboy hat and, you know, a little outfit with shorts and, and with pistols slung from her hips and cowboy boots. And, you know, she stripped down to pasties and G-string. But she started off, you know, dressed in a scanty cowgirl look. But at any rate, nobody really knows because that might have been like a real relationship more than just a photo op. But it fell apart very quickly. And she testified against him during his second tax trial and crucified him in court. Now, she was very friendly with Jack Ruby in Dallas and had been. And she uh, had to serve uh, a drug rap when she came out in 1963. One of the first people she communicated with was her dear friend, Jack Ruby. So as soon as Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, you know, one of the first people they talked to after Ruby shot Oswald was Candy Barr. Mickey Cohen goes to prison again. Now, throughout his life, he was a fighter. He boxed professionally. And he put out hits on people. He He did some himself, I believe, too. Right. And after all of this, the untold number of assassination attempts, he's finally hurt pretty severely while serving in the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary. Can you talk about how that happened and how it ultimately affected him when he got out? Well, in December of 1959, he had a rival gangster named Jack Whalen assassinated right in front of Mickey Cohn's table in a restaurant. And, of course, he went to trial for that, as did a number of his boys. And it all just sort of fell apart. But Jack Whalen's father, who was called Freddie the Thief Whalen, was alleged to be a bookmaker and a con man. And some people said that he was out for revenge. I particularly don't think that that's what happened. Mickey Cohn had been in Alcatraz for tax evasion, like Capone, the only other person, and he was the only person who ever bonded out of Alcatraz, and his bond was signed by a sitting U.S. Supreme Court judge. Then they closed Alcatraz. By this time, he had become an enemy of Robert Kennedy's. He... Jimmy Hoffa and Carlos Marcello were the three number one enemies of Robert Kennedy, who was the attorney general. So he closed Alcatraz, Kennedy closed Alcatraz, and he was transferred to Atlanta Federal Penitentiary. Now there, a convict with a history of attacking other prisoners bludgeoned him in an electronic shop where Mickey was watching television, bludgeoned him with an iron pipe numerous times, and he nearly died and was in a coma for weeks, had a metal plate in his head, and never was the same again. He came out, I think, with his mental faculties intact, but he, after years and years of rehabilitation, he still was partially paralyzed. Mickey Cohn, who ruled L.A. with a combination of muscle and chutzpah, was never the same again. But I do believe that it was Burl Estes McDonald acting on his own that bludgeoned Mickey Cohn because the reason I believe this, Mickey Cohn brought a civil suit. It was a landmark civil suit where he sued the U.S. government for not protecting him in prison. And I believe that there was so much intense scrutiny on this case 
that Mickey Cohn won against the U.S. government, that if there had been any, any shred of evidence that it wasn't Burlesque's McDonald acting alone, that the government would never have lost the case. Talk a bit more, if you don't mind, about this obsession that Robert Kennedy had with Mickey Cohen. He hated Mickey Cohn. He, you know, there was another televised hearing where he was the lead attorney called the McClellan hearings that ran for years. And Mickey and he, like Kennedy, uh, Robert Kennedy and Jimmy Hoffa, they became enemies during this hearing. Now, some have dropped the name of Mickey Cohen as part of the assassination of Robert Kennedy. Do you believe that he had anything to do with that? You know, he was in jail, but... That didn't mean that he couldn't be orchestrating things because Robert Kennedy was assassinated in the Ambassador Hotel where Mickey Cohen used to run a casino, and it was in the Wilshire District where Mickey Cohen allegedly controlled that station of the LAPD. You know, Sirhan Sirhan used to work at Santa Anita, and, you know, Mickey Cohen essentially had his hand in that, Santa Anita racetrack, and there were all these different roads that led to all these different things. Mickey Cohn may have been in jail, but, you know, he was assassinated in Mickey Cohn territory in Los Angeles. So how did Mickey Cohen live out the last few years of his life? Well, he, he, you know, was uh, crippled. He came out of jail in 1972. He could get his hands on money. A lawyer told me that, you know, he ran around with a giant bankroll. He was supposedly out of business, but uh, many people don't believe that he was. Even if he did have the money, nobody knows for sure. He had to live in reduced circumstances. He had this massive tax bill with interest and penalties mounting constantly. He was physically impaired. And I think, you know, he was absolutely mortified that he had to live in reduced circumstances. He then, in, you know, his early 60s, he was finally diagnosed around 1975, and he had metastasized cancer. And he had to pay out of his pocket because he didn't have insurance for his care. And he died in um, July of 1976. Thank you so much, Terry Tariba, for your time today. Terrific. It was great to talk to you. That's it today for Most Notorious, broadcasting true life tales of the lowest points of American history to every cobweb corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis. Good day and see us latest.